And now, coming to you from the Gershon Room, hi, above the Gershon... It's been so long, Gary. It's been so long okay. that I've forgotten. And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, hi, above the Church Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Church Street Podcast. And we're back, just in time for us both to prepare to leave for Dublin. That's uh, right. And see a lot of friends and, uh, and and drink a lot of Guinness. But it occurred to me, I, I can't just do nothing but drink Guinness. Yes, there must can. be other things. That is I, Ireland. I, you can drink whiskey I, when you're not I, drinking I guess Guinness. This, you, you, you drink bass ale or whatever, I guess. Um, nope. Just Guinness, Guinness, huh? Okay. Well, normally I go uh, – okay, it's fine. Normally I go to a convention and I drink wine. I, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but my, my suspicion is Irish wine is not a thing. Even if Irish wine is not a thing, Ireland is in the middle of – is part of the EU. They get EU-priced wine. Of course they've got great wine. They've well, got that's great, true. I was, I was there like this time last year. They have fabulous bars and restaurants and all kinds of things, and there will be no problem finding ways to keep yourself – inebriated for all five days of the convention. I don't necessarily expect to do that, but I at least expect to be incoherent for the five days of the convention. Well, that would be consistent for the pair of us, so yes. I should actually say that we've got our schedules. We've posted them in different places. Uh I've already knocked something off because I double-scheduled myself. So should you listen to the podcast, should you want to go to the autographing on noon on Friday, Uh go with God, but I won't be there. Ah, and I'm not doing an autographing. I I should I will post I, I will post my schedule on um, Facebook or something. I'm on a panel on the, the Hugo Novel nominees, mm-hmm. which is a good panel. Um, yep. And I'm on a panel about 2018 in review, which is one of those panels that always strikes me as odd at Worldcon, and it strikes me as even more odd when they have panels like this at World Fantasy because we're late into 2019 now. Yeah, that's and true. As as you have been, I've been reading 2019 titles since sometime in the fall of 2018. Um, and I, I realize that this is all because we're giving out awards for, for the of year course. 2018. But 2018 seems to me to be two years ago now. <laughs> at least. Uh, at least two and years by, ago. And, 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 and by the time of World Fantasy, it seems oh, – I, I, I remember that story with nostalgia – <laughs> well, see, the real, what, what ha- begins to happen, though, is someone will ask you, well, what are the books that you're interested in from this year? Mm-hmm. And you start talking about, like, 2019 books because you're interested mm-hmm. in The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex Harrow or you're interested in, um, you know, whatever else you've, you've been reading or you're waiting because you've just seen they've released the arcs for the new William Gibson novel. Right. And you're all focused on that. And you're trying to remember, well, hang on, which books was Ancient Night Engines by Elizabeth Bear a 2018 or a 2019 title? And that was a 2019 That's title. exactly the kind of thing yeah. I find myself having. So I have to look these things up and, and figure out, okay, what books actually appeared in 2018. And it, it's one of the things that um, that, that suggests is that the, the half-life of books, of even good books, may not be what it once was. It seems to me that uh, people we, – we've talked about this before. People were talking about um, Neuromancer for years after it came out. People were talking about Ancillary Justice for three yeah. or four years. It didn't seem like a one-year book. No. Um, and there are fewer and fewer books that seem to continually seem new. Obviously, somebody was uh, posting a comment on Twitter or Facebook about are there any common 
uh, common readings that everybody recognizes today, the way everybody recognized Starship Troopers back in the 60s, or, or everybody recognizes the Forever War for that matter for a while, and everybody recognizes Neuromancer. Somebody came up with the idea of the three-body problem as being one of the most widely read science fiction novels, and it may be, um, but it's... You don't feel it's, like there's simple, anything? It, 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 I, I don't know if there's anything that um, is a multi-year novel like that. Uh, I this think has the Nora Jemison books might be. The Nora Jemison books will probably last. Um, but again, uh, you're talking about a trilogy which basically came out over a period of time and you expect it to, for people to catch up with. Um, there's, there are novels I think ought to be widely read that, that uh, may or may not be having buzz. I, I think... Uh, Waste Tide, the Chin Kafan, uh, I'm not pronouncing that right at all, is one of the best ecological nightmare novels of the last several years, a Chinese novel that didn't get nearly the attention of it's still um, a pretty new three body it's, it's still a pretty new book. I, well, this is the other problem. I, I, I'll, I'll talk about books that I read six months ago and realize, oh yeah, they're just out a little while ago. That's right. Um, I mean, I'm, if I look at the 2019 books that are just sitting in front of me, Gary, Mm-hmm. Um, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, the, the City in the Middle of the Night, The Raven Tower, The Bird King, um, Exhalation, um, Sooner or Later Everything Falls into the Sea, um, Infinite Detail, A Brightness Long Ago. These are all books that have come out. I mean, the, the Iron Dragon's Mother is only five minutes old. The future of another yeah. timeline hasn't come out yet. Um, the, the second Rebecca, Rebecca Roanhorse book is only five minutes old. There's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, Gary. Too many. There's too many. My, and my question is, um, as it has been on many of these podcasts, which of these will we, will we be talking about in four or five years? I don't and think you can tell. I actually have this thing with, with short fiction where I'm going to be interested to see which of the stories that are being lauded in this in the 2000 and four to 19 period are being lauded in 10 years time I don't think the stories that are being nominated aren't good and aren't award worthy but I'm just going to be curious to see how they hold up well this is one of the what what actually started me thinking about this was just kind of random associations where you'll read something or see something and, and a short story pops into your mind and you realize that short story is incredibly vivid in your mind even though it might be a few years old and so I started thinking what stories and this may have be a function of personality, it may be a function of how stories affect me. I was trying to think of stories that I read within the last ten or so years that will just pop up at me as, as being very vivid and for for an odd reason, the two that came up, one was exhalation, which I just thought I think both of I think actually think both of these are stories that you bought. One was exhalation because it just struck me as I hadn't seen anybody do anything quite like that in yeah. science fiction before. The other story, which could not be more different and which is just as vivid in my mind as the day I read it, was Karen Joy Fowler's The Pelican Bar. Yeah. It just absolutely haunts me. I don't know why those particular stories. So I started thinking, are there others like that? Well, there's part of uh, the reason with Pelican Bar. We talked about that story a lot. We did, and it's a very mysterious story. Mm. Uh but it's but it's very powerful for what it does, um, and I was reading. Uh, there, there there are stories that gain power. Um, that's just visceral in a kind of disturbing way. 
and and Karen Joy Fowler can do that. Another writer who who can do that for me is Alyssa Wong. Every story I've read by her has been unnerving um, and powerful. I like her work a lot. She's really good. So my question is, which which writers like that kind of haunt you on a on, on a personal level? This has nothing to do with literary history, with saying these stories are going to last or these stories are going to be the most anthologized. They just uh, keep coming back to me. Egan's work tends to Greg Egan's work tends to haunt me. It mm-hmm. tends to be really interesting and chewy and robust, and get to some point that leaves you feeling kind of uncomfortable, in a way because it, because of the way it talks uh, thinks about how we approach life and the world. Mm-hmm. So his work tends to really uh, more than anybody else in the last five years or so, I think. Though, I mean, well, I think- I, I'm weirdly read these days. I keep looking at all these classic novels that I have to read because I just haven't had time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to go back and read novels um, like the, the 1960s novels that I read or, or reading some of the Lafferty stories, which would seem as bizarrely original to me today as they did back then. And one of the stories which is sort of in my index in the uh, – there are two or three stories – uh, of Lafferty's and Slow Tuesday Nights for some reason just completely haunts me because it seems to me that it becomes more and more relevant every day. Um, very true. I spent some time talking to Clarion West students about that very story over the last uh, the last week uh, because it keeps coming up as a great example of a really tightly plotted. I mean, it's a very short story. It's like two thousand, two and a half thousand words long. It's very short, yeah. But it packs its entire idea in very compactly without ever being didactic. You know, basically, mm. for those who are listening who are not familiar with Slow Tuesday Night, which you can read in the best of R.A. Lafferty, it is a story about a world where processing speed of, of reality has increased to the point where mm. everybody can live virtually an entire life in a single night between dusk and dawn. You know, yeah, you, have, meets, you have careers, you make fortunes, you lose them, you get married, you have children. Uh, all this happens within a matter of hours. Yeah. And it allows Lafferty to make all kinds of points about civilization, how we interact. Mm. But it's engaging and strange and funny and utterly, I mean, lucidly clear with what he's doing. So it's really, really a remarkable story. Um, And one one that's great to actually break down the students. So, yeah. Well, speaking of Clarion, how was it to teach your first Clarion? It was a really interesting life experience. Speaking of someone who's always been unsure whether writing workshops were had a significant portion of snake oil to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel less skeptical about the exercise. I thought that the 18 people that I interacted with were fabulous. Jack, Dan, and I had a lot of fun talking to them, working through writing problems and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. The people at Clarion West itself uh, who were running the place were fantastic, made our lives simple and easy. Uh, and in fact, everybody else by the end of the, the week was saying, you know, sort of, wasn't that tiring and draining and all that? And I'm like, I could go another week. That was no problem at all. Well, tell me what the students were like, though, because I met some of them. I was out there the first week of Clarion West and I, the, the week that Elizabeth Hand had taught. And my impression was that I couldn't make generalizations. They were all very, very bright. Some of them knew who knew what Locus was. Uh, they were looking forward to all the teachers, but I didn't have enough time to talk to very many of them to find out where they came from. What did they read? Why did, what did they think they were getting into when they wanted to be science fiction or fantasy writers? Well, it's interesting because we didn't ha- actually address that specific question. I mean, we did talk about where they came, came from both 
uh-huh. geographically and in terms of their interest in the genre. Some were core genre. Some were a lot actually were very literary, you know, more sort of slanting, so just just skidding off the side of the field. They were literary writers uh-huh. or wanted to be literary writers or slipstream writers. They were interested in that sort of coffeehouse press, tin house, McSweeney's kind yeah. of part of the world rather than Asimov's and Clark's world. Uh, they came from from Finland and from New Orleans and from yeah. all around the world. So they were, that was interesting. They were kind of like most of them were in their sort of early to mid-30s, I guess, and at that stage where they needed to sit down and just spend a lot of time writing. And that, that's the primary gift. I mean, if anyone was thinking about going to a, a Clarion, either Clarion West or Clarion in San Diego, um, it makes you sit down for six weeks and write in a way that maybe well, you can't is- otherwise do. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were getting out of it, I think, sort of whacking away six story, you know, a, a story a week and trying to work that out. Well, this is what I've heard from people about Clarion, and it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting debate which has kind of been emerging on, uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And Kelly Link started a Twitter uh, mm. stream that, uh, that, that talked about the uh, absolutely astonishing debt that people go into for MFA programs. And a couple of the comments were that even though Clarion or Clarion West is, is, is not cheap, it's in many ways more useful than an MFA program and doesn't put you in that kind of debt. So the question about whether these workshops are, are worthwhile is one that I, I don't have an answer to, never having taught one, never having been in one. But I've been involved with people in MFA programs who seem to have much more limited ambitions for themselves. Well, I can understand – I, I guess, I, I, yeah. go, go ahead. I guess what I'd say uh, is, it, you know, is, you know, is doing Clarion or something like Clarion worthwhile? Mm-hmm. The answer is completely unhelpful, and it is. It depends on who you are and what you want and where you're at in your writing process, right? Uh, I think Clarion could be exactly the kick in the backside that some people need. I could uh-huh. already, you know, there were people suddenly going, well, wow, I've written, I mean, we were with week five. I've written four stories in four weeks. That's more than I've written in the last two years. I want to go home and keep writing at this sort of a pace or close to this mm-hmm. pace and see if I can actually get more stories sold because a number of them had sold stories hither and, hither and beyond. In some cases, there's, there's this weird thing, and I realize it, 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 writing is an isolated activity, obviously. And mm-hmm. weirdly, I kept coming across this thing where writers felt well, the students felt they needed to be given permission to try to do something. You know, like, uh-huh. I don't think I could do that. Well, you're going, well, there's only one way to find out. You know, Find an example that you like, break down how it works, copy it, write, try and make it, make, make it function. And if you do that, you'll begin to build up that kind of skill if that's something you're going to do and want to do. So getting permission to do it and being told that they had some ability in certain areas was, I think is the kind of thing that proved to be valuable to them as much as specific skills and being told to write less second-person point-of-view present-tense stories. Yeah, that kind of advice I, I, I can understand because what one of the things that I think writing budding writers need to be exposed to are people who read a lot of budding writers because they mm. otherwise won't know that a lot of other budding writers are budding in exactly the same direction that they're budding in. <laughs> um, well, yeah. But my question is this. If you have, I can understand that there was a time when going to a Clarion or a Clarion West was probably consistent largely of students who they wanted to be 
they wanted to be the next Seguin, or they wanted to be the next Lois McMaster Bujold, or they wanted to be the next Joe Haldeman or something. Now you've got, you've mentioned there are a group of students who may, they want to be the next Carmen Maria Machado or Kelly Link or George Saunders. And the, are those people getting along well with the people who want to be, yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. I, I, I picked up no note of condescension to anybody else and what they wanted to do. And sometimes people surprised you because, I mean, we had one student who had some, some real ability who wrote a absurdist, I think it's fair, an absurdist, surreal story about gender uh-huh. who had been published in Analog that very month. Huh. And so it's like, as is often the case, these things are never quite as simple as they look. You know, people don't fit into boxes, writers don't fit into boxes, and they have to try different things. No, I, that's encouraging, I think. I think that the, uh, my sense is, um, and this goes back to conversations uh, I've had with editors for years, it goes back to conversations I had with people like Gordon Van Gelder, that venues like um, FNSF or Asimov's, or Sheila Williams is, an, is another example, um, or your own original anthologies or uh, the Eclipsers have always been open to more literary approaches more so than most literary journals have been open to kind of fantastical genre approaches. Possibly so. I'm glad that, that could be true. And I, I think some of, the pe- some of the students needed to hear that there were markets out there for their work that they hadn't been thinking of other- otherwise. You know, there were students who came from an MFA background who were less familiar with genre markets that would probably have been mm-hmm. interested in their stories. So there was that conversation to have. Um, and just just to see how... How, how how they reacted to different advice because I mean, Clarion for those who don't know is really quite a structured workshop. Mm-hmm. You know, you do critiques in the morning, one on one sessions in the afternoon. There's four stories critiqued in a the morning. There's eighteen students and the tutor, so everybody gets two minutes responding to a story. So it takes a certain amount of time to work through. Uh-huh. And those people who have their stories critiqued that morning have a one on one for thirty minutes with a tutor in the afternoon. Um. That gives you kind of in- reasonably intense but structured way of discussing it, but also means you yeah. don't go off on tangents too much. And personally speaking, I think it would be interesting to go back and go through some of those tangents. And I'm, I'm keeping in touch or intend to keep in touch with uh-huh. the students who were there because they generally were a great bunch and we had a great time. We had a great time teaching them. Jack and I had a great time. I mean, Jack Dan has been a friend of mine for 25 years and we probably spent more time together in the last two weeks than we have in the last 25 years. So that was nice. I envy that because Jack is a delightful uh, guy, and he's in addition to being a very successful novelist, he's a successful editor such as yourself, which which leads me to my next question, which is how do the students – I don't know how often editors actually show up at Clarion Workshops, but I would think that on the one hand, this you, you guys could be the most intimidating people of all because you actually have power of purse strings over what they might write. Oh, well, I, I think Jack and I were goofy enough – that well, they weren't intimidated. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for approaching this stuff with humor and making people feel comfortable. And I like, I choose to believe that we were able to make people feel comfortable and to, uh-huh. to, to settle into what we were doing. So that was good. Um, and, you know, we got to see some of the stories over a period of time. You could see people trying different things. There was also, mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, the thing that's hard, I mean, I feel so, I really feel for people who want to write because there are no, there's, okay, there's lots and lots of good writing instruction out there, right? 
but there's no uh-huh. good way to work out what of it really applies to you other than sitting there. I mean, there was one writer who the, the best analogy I could come up from where they were at was I felt like they'd been to 15 different writers' workshops, got 15 different sets of directions, and were trying to follow all of them. I can understand that. I could. So, I would never. I would never deign to give advice to a fiction writer because my suspicion is that all advice given to all fiction writers is always wrong, um, or at least it's wrong. A good amount of it is wrong for that particular writer. The the, the things the, the kill your darlings thing that keeps coming up again and again and again. There are some writers who absolutely need to do that. I have no doubt of it because you can see a self indulgence creeping in. There are other writers who need to run with their darlings. I guess what I'd say is there is some good advice out there, but it tends to be general. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. kill all the darlings always sounds fun. I mean, but if you break it down, it makes a kind of sense. I think Neil Gaiman uh, said somewhere that the only thing that should be on the page is what needs to be on the page. That makes sense to me. Cut it back. Make sure that it is what needs to be there. Uh, right. The only way to learn how to write is to write, you know, that makes sense to me. You know, you're not going to that, that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense too. And, and, and that's, a, but that's kind of, well, that, okay. That, that was one of the things that, uh, going back to the advice you used to get in, uh, Heinlein's, uh, advice, he wrote an essay on, on the writing of speculative fiction. And basically it was write, uh, finish what you write and find some place to sell it. That's pretty much all his advice was, but you get an idea, you follow through on it. Uh, I, I, I guess what, what makes me a little suspicious of, um, of, of, of that kind of advice is that uh, I've seen very commercial writers trying to advise very literary writers in ways that were just – they weren't in the same orbit. They were never going to communicate to mm. each other. And they both had a completely – I'm thinking of a couple of specific conversations I've had. Um, different kinds of writers want to do different kinds of things, and my guess is that um, – People who put out the money to go to Clarion uh, West are probably not planning a career where they're going to write uh, gaming and movie or tie-in novels. Uh, they probably have ambitions I don't know. to. I mean, you'd be surprised. I think you'd be genuinely surprised. I might be, and it may be that there's no difference there anymore. I mean, one of the writers whose careers I think is most fascinating to follow is Brian Evanson because yes, he wants to publish and did publish a Torah science fiction novel and some Alien vs. Predators novels and that gaming franchise that he wrote two novels for that I can never remember the name of. And then at the other end of the spectrum is one of the darlings of the MFA programs because of the Brian Evanson literary fiction that uh, is very powerful uh, in its own right. Uh, so the idea of being able to write in in both the gaming world and the tie-in world on the one hand and the literary world on the other hand doesn't seem to be a choice people have to make anymore no i don't think you really have to make a choice i think you have to write i think you have to work out what you want and i think and this is probably the hardest thing you have to be able to get sufficient distance from what you've written to work out what it is and where you might send Mm. it i think getting perspective on your own work is the hardest thing of all um and I, i mean i could see that over the week so yeah so but i would recommend people go to clarion if they want to write yeah or you can just write or you can just write and maybe is read and think about it that's what that's the bit that gets me read and think about it this is this is the other question which uh, has come up and i've i've talked to people who've and and most people who teach clarion love the students yeah Uh, yeah, they were great lovely people 
and, and they're obviously very bright people who probably would not have gotten into Clarion in the first place. But one of the things that uh, is an interesting uh, contrast, I didn't know if there were any students in your group who want to be screenwriters. The thing I keep hearing uh, students who enter MFA programs uh, from MFA teachers that I know uh, is that so many of them think they can write screenplays because they've seen movies. Um, but many of them seem to think they can write novels without having read novels, which strikes me as odd. Yeah. Uh, it's odd in both ways because, first of all, watching a movie does not give you any sense at all of what, how a screen, screenplay is structured. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so, yeah, the, the, the one piece of advice which I guess I would uh, endorse that almost every writing teacher says is you have to read a lot and especially read a lot of the sort of thing you want to write. Yeah, I think that's true. And break it down. I mean, uh, I would like to have a time to sit there with the students and take a classic story apart, take classic opening lines apart, work out why they work, that kind of thing, because I think they would benefit from that. Uh, we were talking about benefiting from just sitting there and writing them out by hand, just stopping yourself to pay attention to the exact detail of what an author is doing bit by bit mm -hmm. by bit to try and understand the techniques that are being used and why and what the effect they have is that kind of thing you know but it, look it's it's an adventure it is and it sounds fascinating I'm i'll just share one one anecdote about the relationship between newer writers and traditional genre struck me one of the books i was reading this week which i should have read earlier mm-hmm was Nettie Okorafor's TED book based on her TED talk called uh, Broken Places in Outer Spaces. And it's a memoir of her uh, childhood uh, growing up in a working class suburb of Chicago. Uh, I think it was South Holland. Um, and, and experiencing flat out racism. I mean, her parents mm. were physicians and so they moved to where they could work at a hospital. So, so she and her sisters had to develop uh, – a great deal of speed to get away from people, racists chasing them. There's some unnerving stories in there. Uh, but the, the, the core of her book is her account of um, becoming a well-known uh, state-level high school tennis player uh, and track and field star, and then coming down with a scoliosis, which it turns out all her siblings had had, but it got better in her siblings. In her case, it didn't. She ended up having to go in for surgery for it and ended up paralyzed because of the surgery. So all, her whole academic, her whole uh, athletic career basically was down the tubes. And there's a, yeah. uh, there's a, there's a scene in it. Uh, she writes about this with uh, appalling honesty in many ways. And I've heard these stories from her long before this uh, happened um, and even talked to her mom about it once. The courage that was involved in in coming back from this, she describes in terms of uh, Tarantino's Kill Bill movie where, uh, what's her name, Tarantino's girlfriend. The, the Widow the or whatever game. her name is? The, uh, yeah, Uma the Widow. Thurman. Uma Thurman is trying to will her big toe to move. Uh, yeah. and, and Nettie says she was doing exactly that sort of thing. So she's in the hospital. She's recovering from this. And somebody brings her an old beat-up copy of Asimov's I, Robot. Mm -hmm. um, and... I don't even know if she was consciously writing it this way in her book or not, but she, she doesn't read the book. But she's got, a piece, she's got these pieces of paper and she's got a pen, so she starts writing her own stuff in the margins of the Asimov book. <laughs> um, she's making up her own story. She's beginning to discover herself as a writer, right, scribbling all over this, this Asimov paper. She never read the Asimov paperback <laughs> until 20 years later. She never read a word of iRobot. <laughs> and I, I, I said this in a 
It'll be a forthcoming review, which won't be out till October, so nobody will remember it by then. And I was thinking, that's such a neat metaphor for her career and the careers of a lot of other people. They're writing in the margins of those yeah. old classics, and eventually they'll get to the old classics. But right now, they're writing new stuff in the margins of what we used to think was science fiction. Absolutely. Now, since this is a short episode, we're going to wind up about here. It's a short episode because we're going to Dublin. You have to pack. I have, I have to, to finish, finish editing a book of dragon stories and a few other things, so that's the thing. Uh, we do want to say that you're going to be doing panels on the best novels of 2018 and the Hugo Awards of 2018 and things mm. that are like things you've read if you like that thing that you read before. It's basically imitating an algorithm. Yeah, that's the one I ducked. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to tell hmm? every, if you like anything at all, you'll probably like Thomas the Tank Engine. Fantastic. That's uh, my advice. That's sensible. I will be talking about fan podcasts, a thing about which I know almost nothing, and I will be talking about the best short fiction of 2018, a thing which will be interesting to talk about with the people I'm talking about, Neil and Sheila and some other people, which would be great, Neil mm -hmm. Clark and Sheila, Sheila Williams. Uh, we're, I've got a Kathy Clatch someday. Look it up if you want to come. Come along. Mm -hmm. um, you have a beer, which will be I you. I have a literary go to that one. I think it's Saturday evening or something along those lines. Yeah, I can't make that. Uh, well, I try to come to Happy Clatch too, and we can. Yeah, uh, and then and then also I saw on the Locus Instagram feed, which I'm sure you follow, they have galleys of your new project, the uh, Library of America science new, new science fiction in the '60s set. So that those arcs are going around, and they, they, yeah, that they've that means everybody that, except me. I know. Look, dude, I've had to buy books I edited <laughs> this year three times. <laughs> the only way I got copies of them was to go to a bookstore and buy them. No okay. sympathy. <laughs> and it's like, bad. But yeah, I get you. Uh, and then we will be hopefully talking to some people, I think, maybe when we're there. And there'll be more podcasts when we come back. So having been very, very spotty and sort of delivering podcasts, we will be even more patchy for the next four weeks or so. All right. Well, but we will be seeing some of our listeners, we hope, in Dublin. Yes. And, uh, please, please, and please come. Around. And if we don't, and we probably will get something recorded there. Not certainly, not long after we get back. Yeah. Okay. Well, until we, then, we have some we have some exciting guests who have agreed in principle to be on the podcast yes. sometime within the next decade. I mean, they may come to their senses and in practice decide not to, but we'll see. But until we'll then, see. This is until me. then, the Cood Street Podcast.